When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But he's our guest, musician, actor, writer, and curator, Richard Strange. Crimson flames tied through my ears, blowing high and mighty traps. Countless hours on flaming roads, using ideas as my maps. We'll meet on edges soon, said I, proud, neat heated brow, ah. But I was so much older then. I'm younger than that now. Very beautiful. I love the way you emphasized edges there. Yes, a lot of people think that word is ages. But I... <laughs> Tell us why you chose that, Richard. Well, as I'm sure everyone's told you, with every what's your favorite bar, it's a hell of a, a decision to make because every time you latch on one, you think, but what about that? What about... Mm. Even on that album, on the other side of Bob Dylan, which is an embarrassment of riches for me, uh, both lyrically and uh, emotionally, there is so much you could choose from and just say, that is just a quintessential Bob four-liner or opening verse. There's something lovely about the rug being pulled under you with that reversal of, of logic. I was older then, I'm younger mm. than that now. And that mm. is, although that never takes you by surprise after the first time you hear it, it mm. somehow it does. And this cascade of lyric that he sets up in that song and many others around that period, where you just, you're knocked backwards by the sheer force of his skill as a wordsmith, as well as a deliverer of a lyric. And, and that, for me, has always been a really important thing with Bob. He doesn't just write a great lyric. He delivers that lyric. He sells that lyric like no one else. And that's a, a rather gentle way into that song, uh, my back pages. Crimson Flames. <laughs> OK, yeah, and, and we're up and running. Those images just keep on coming all the way through that song and not to labour it too much, that album. Uh, you think, uh, as a companion piece to that, I always think of Chimes of Freedom as probably one of my other two most favourite songs that could easily have been the opening lyric of that. It's a nostalgic song, that, isn't it? It's about finding your identity, I guess, and making your mistakes on the hoof, and God knows uh, I can relate to that. So, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful lyric. And this idea that maybe we can maintain our youthful exuberance but maybe can somehow graft on some wisdom to it uh, as we get older, wouldn't that be lovely? <laughs> Speaking of youth, when did, uh, when did Bob tap you on the shoulder? I think it was 1964, 1965. I was born in 51, so I was 14, 15. 
I had two older brothers, uh, now both sadly parted, but my middle brother, Brian, was much closer uh, because uh, we were two and a half years apart, whereas my older brother was another four years down the road. And so his music was uh, rock and roll and trad jazz, my eldest brother, but Brian and I grew up in the 60s. So we came out of the uh, waiting room for uh, Eternal Hell, which was the BBC light programme, and sing something simple in the black and white minstrel shows and all that that my parents listened to, Billy Cotton Band Show. And uh, suddenly there was music everywhere and the swinging 60s are often uh, cited as as being a non-stop cavalcade of fun. And of course they weren't, but there was some great music and it was a great time to be white, male, English-speaking, living in London and teenage, you know. 1964, I think I saw my first ever live pop concert, as we called it back then. Now we'd call it a rock concert. And uh, it was the Kinks at uh, the Silver Blades Ice Rink in Streatham. Wow. (laughs) The week they got to number one with You Really Got Me. And I've got the poster for that uh, somewhere. And on the poster it says, The Kinks and James Fender and the Vulcans at Streatham (laughs) I was on the guest list at 14. Sadly, it was James Fender and the Vulcans' guest list I was on, <laughs> rather than Ray and Dave's. Um, but it blew my mind and, and changed my life, that. I thought, that is what I want to do. You know, that uh, that was the invention of heavy metal, of course, the kinks when they were doing You Really Got Me and All Day and All the Night and that stuff. So that was my introduction. Then we had the animals, we had the Who, we had the Beatles, the Stones, the Small Faces and all that sort of stuff, Manfred Mann, you know, and those bands, the Yardbirds. And these were our, our favourite bands. Then one day my brother came home from school with the Times Hour of Changing 12-inch album. So this must have been about 64, 65, because I think it was quite new, uh, newly released. And uh, he put it on, and it did exactly what music should do. It upset the hell out of my parents, <laughs> you know. That voice, you know, the songs that were on that, only a pawn in their game, and one of my favourite songs of all time, Williams and Zinger, Kill Boy Carol, you know, and it's like, you just listen to that storytelling, you know, yeah. and you're just blown away. Only a pawn in their game, you know, and learning about history through song. Medgar Evers, who? I heard Medgar Evers uh, referenced on the, on the television two days ago, and I was straight back in 1964. Took Medgar Evers' blood, you know. Mm. We're the home of Bad Dylan. Yeah, Bad Bad Dylan. Thank God for that. Was was this in South London? Yeah, this was in South London. And and my brother and I were big, big music fans. So this, yeah, 1964, 65. So pop music was still very much pop music, but it was just starting to get a little bit edgy and take chances. People were writing their own songs, and that was a big breakthrough. It was not just Tin Pan Alley. It was churning them out for Cliff and, and for Adam and so on. It was like the Beatles, who did so much, probably more than anything, they kicked down the door or the barrier between the performer and the songwriter. And, of course, as soon as that was gone, we all wanted to hear great songwriting. The Beatles, obviously, uh, were aware of Bob Dylan long before I was. Uh, and so were the animals, of course, because the animals did Baby Let Me Follow You Down and House of the Rising yeah, Sun, yeah. both of Bob's debut album. And I suppose people like uh, Nina Simone had quite a lot in common in as much as they were 
raiding that uh, treasure chest of American folk song or spirituals or gospel or whatever it was and uh, reinterpreting it. So that record was uh, always on our dance set for six months. And then one day I took it into school and my English teacher, who was a great man, uh, Bev Woodruff, I was at a South London comprehensive school, 2,000 boys in Brixton in an eight-storey glass building that looked like the headquarters of Smirsh or Thrush or whatever, <laughs> right? Um, and, you know, it was quite culturally diverse, not, not hugely, but quite. But it was a, a curious school in as much as the headmaster had been deputy head at Dulwich College, so he'd come from private education uh, and been landed, parachuted in to run this academic experiment, if you like, comprehensive education, 2,000 boys. And what he brought from the private education world was a debating society, a theatre club, Amdram, archery, cadet corps, an army cadet corps and all that stuff. So a lot of stuff that you didn't particularly want to be involved in, but some stuff that you did. And so there was a drama society, a debating society, and an English teacher, Bev Woodruff, who was a great, great man. And he looked at this album and he said, do you like this? I said, yeah, and he'd sort of heard of it. He was very switched on. And he said, if you like this, you might like Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> you might like William Burroughs. You might like Jack Kerouac. You might like William Blake. You might like Dylan Thomas. You might even like Shakespeare somewhere down the road, you know. And this was such a revelation to me because he was one of those teachers who switched on a light for me when I was 14, 15 with Burroughs, Ginsberg, Dylan Thomas... Uh, R.S. Thomas, a Welsh poet, and, uh, and just said, you're not going to like all of this, but have a look at that, have a look at that. Ferlinghetti, Gregory Corso, blah, 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 you know. And I had a French girlfriend at the time, and I was immersing myself in all stuff French as well, so Jacques Brel was coming into the mix, mm. as well as the symbolist poets, you know, Baudelaire and Rimbaud and, and so on. I must have been an insufferable 14-year-old instead of <laughs> going train-spotting or playing conkers. You know, I was bunking off school and going to art galleries and seeing uh, contemporary art. But I don't regret it. But, yeah, that's, that's my earliest uh, uh, recollection of Bob coming into my life was, yeah, around that time, 64, 65, the Times Hour Change, it was the album... But, of course, as soon as we heard that, we couldn't go forward because there was nothing post that. So we could go back and we mm. could find freewheeling. And, you know, everyone always rhapsodised about Blowing in the Wind. I think it's a pretty boring song, Me personally. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, but I understand its, its relevance and its potency in the canon of protest music, you know. And that album, I suppose, is that and Times Out Change. Probably Bob at its most protesty. You know, Masters of War and, and uh, all that stuff. Um, what about the first one? What did you make of it when you went back? When I went back to it, I quite liked the bluesy stuff because by then I was listening to Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee and Sonny Boy Williamson and mm. Muddy Waters, and mm. that was the music that a lot of white English, what we then called R&B bands, were making in the local church hall on a Friday night. You know, you'd go and see... James Fender and the Vulcans or someone, and they would all do Bo Diddley songs, Chuck Berry songs, but they would do Sonny Terry, Brownie McGee, Smokestack Lightning was an, uh, another one, you know, Alan Wolf and, and all that stuff. They would they would do uh, 
My Babe, John Lee Hooker. That mm. was that was the canon, you know. Mm-hmm. So some of those songs were familiar already. Obviously, the animals had done House of the Rising Sun and Baby Let Me Take You Home. So it's interesting to hear another take on those songs. I've always been a bit of a softie. I'm still a softie. So I think my favourite on that was Song to Woody. It was a song that he uh, elegy to his great um, mentor and, and uh, inspiration, Woody Guthrie. Uh, Hey, Woody Guthrie, I wrote you a song about a funny old world that's coming along, you know. And yeah, I, I, I really like that. Yeah, I've got a real soft spot for it. I mean, I, I, I listen to it probably more than uh, the album times they are. I change it because, yeah. I don't know, it just... It, it holds my attention more than the the finger pointing songs, which though around that time, mm. I, uh, there's only so many fingers I could have there's some pointed. Lo- there's some lovely... Romantic songs on Times Are Changing, aren't they? When you think of Boots of Spanish Leather or yes. uh, the North Country Blues, yeah. is it called? You know, yeah. where the, the, uh, the coal mine mm-hmm. shutting down. Mm-hmm. They're incredibly powerful emotionally, those songs, without being especially protest. Yes, there was a political standpoint that it's much, much cheaper down in that South American town where the people work almost for nothing or whatever he says, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, you know, there's some decent politics going on there. But Boots of Spanish Leather, I mean, that, that is a beautiful song. Yeah. And as a protest song, I suppose When the Ship Comes In is, is a lovely song because it's quite exuberant and, you know, that, mm. the, the tempo of it and the delivery of that, it's not downbeat and finger-pointing. Mm. It's, like, it's like we shall overcome. It's mm. like, you know, this won't last forever. It's going to be a great day when that ship comes in. Keep your spirits up. I always associate you, I don't know why, I, I sort of assumed that it would be the stuff a year or two later that would grab you more. It did more. as well, it did as but well. So, so, that, so that came next. I mean, did you, first, before we get onto that, did you, ever, did you see him when he came to London in 64 or 65 or 66? No, no, I didn't get to see him. It, it was around that time, I suppose about 1965, that, was it 65 when Pennebacher made that yeah. movie? Yeah. yeah. So I think it was just out of my range, out out of my pocket money range, you know. And he was so hot then, you know, uh, commercially hot. No, I didn't. I I wish I did. I've I've seen him several times since, but um, that would have been something to see, yeah. Mm. And you must have been blown away by what happened next with bringing it all back home and et cetera. Well, was it Graham Marcus who wrote a book about the first drum beat of uh, (laughs) Like a Rolling (laughs) Stone? Yeah, yeah. you know, the the snare drum that kicked down the, the door mm-hmm. or whatever that was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and what was it like at home at this point, if you were still at home? I was very I assume much your still father home. was getting more and more livid. Hated it, hated it. But by now, of course, Bob had become not just a singer, but he was a, a he was a celebrity, but B, he was something of a role model. I mean, it was the coolest. He invented the difficult interview. Always carry a light bulb on. Yeah. You know, Donovan, Donovan, who mm-hmm. stick him on the wall or whatever, you yep. know. And he had this entourage around him which seemed impossibly glamorous and exotic to me, a, a, a kid in South London still at school, you know, 14, 15. I was incredibly proud to have discovered him so early and, and watching my schoolmates jump on the bandwagon, you know. There was a certain element of uh, smugness involved in that. You know, when someone said, uh, oh, have you heard Manfred Mann, Mighty Quinn, or, you know, or, <laughs> or 
whatever it was, whatever other songs they were. Or, they did or, just like a woman. Too, just like a yeah, woman, they yeah. did, and they did. If you've got to go, go now. Yeah, and that's yeah. What, yeah. But I read an interview recently where they said, "Who covers your songs the best?" And he said instantly, "Manfred Mann." Did he? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. He didn't mention anybody else. He just said, "Manfred Mann, yeah, pretty good." Oh uh, well, you know what? I think there's another interview where he says, uh, where someone says, "Who covers your song best?" And he says, "Johnny Rivers." Positively Fourth Street, uh-huh. yeah, which, which is a yeah. great version, and and it drove me. To, and I, I only saw that uh, quote from Bob about six months ago, and I went immediately to dig out Johnny Rivers, mm-hmm. and it's it's a good version. A I couple like. of our guests have brought it up actually, and I've been alerted to it as a result. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So the protest thing was kicking off, and running in the back of my head was the beat thing. So Burroughs and. Uh, Kerouac and, and Ginsburg, specifically those three, and you know, Ferlinghetti and Corso and, and Dos Passos and all these people, peripherally. But those three, like the the, the great boy band of beat literature, you, you know, was those three. <laughs> I um, read the other day that Brother Bill in uh, Tombstone Blues is allegedly Burroughs. Oh, is it? Yeah, which had oh. not occurred to me at oh, all. Oh, God, yeah. yeah, well, I don't, yeah, there was spurious connections between them going through, but um, I think that. Two of them must both have been so impenetrably oblique that the idea that they would even have spoken to each mm. other. You know? um, uh, no, I don't think so. So you couldn't buy Burroughs. You couldn't give him away either. Uh, in uh, 1966 in London because he was obscene and he was uh. blasphemous. So my mate Joe Gilbert and I went to Paris. Uh, we hitchhiked to Paris, so we sort of combined two of our great passions, Jack Kerouac, because we were hitching, but we were going to Paris to um, Shakespeare and Co. to buy contraband literature, yeah. and it was it was Bill Burroughs on the, uh, I think it was called the Olympic Press, so it, was, it mm. had um, those olive green covers, and you could get the soft machine and naked lunch and um, junkie over there, and you couldn't get mm. them here at that time, 1966. I think by 1967 you probably could in Better Books in Charing Cross Road or Zwemers or those where I used to go to... <laughs> I blanch and even say I used to go to poetry readings when I was 15 <laughs> when I wasn't going to folk clubs, which, like, just down the road in Litchfield Street. Again, I, I, I look back and, and, and think... Was I really only 15? And what was I telling my parents when I was going to see Al Stewart and Jackson Frank and John Martin and Bert Yanch and Roy Harper at Les Cousins and uh, Bungies in Litchfield Street in these dingy Soho fleshpot cellars paid half a crown or five bob and you'd see Paul Simon. Uh, Did or, you see him? Yeah, when he was I saw. Over yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, um, Roy Harper. I used to go and see more or less every week. And so Harper, you would get Jackson Frank, or you'd get Al Stewart, or you'd get Sandy Denny, or you'd get John Renborn, or whoever. You know that whole pantheon of English folk music, as it uh, as it then was, all passed through. Well, also, sorts. I mentioned on Twitter the other day those early seventies BBC and concert series, yeah. you know, the great ones with Carol King and Joni Mitchell and Neil Young. Richard piles in, says, "Yep, saw those. <laughs> I, I was there. I'm in the crowd." <laughs> I did. I saw um, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, and I think they were at um, Maida Vale. It wasn't that I was um, on any guest list. There was a guy called Mike. He was a record plugger, and he worked. I got to know him as a record plugger just as I, uh, I was starting off as a musician. 
Uh, and he got tickets for these things. And mm. his, his wife didn't much care for that genre of music. And he said, do you want to come and see Neil Young? Or, or um, James Taylor was another one. Mm. And uh, Joni Mitchell. They were uh, all 70, 71, those, yeah, I think. Yeah, oh, well, yeah. They were 70, 71, mm. right? Yeah, OK. Mm. So I was 20, yeah. And going back to 1966, you're 15. You're into the Beats. You're into early Bob Dylan. How did you sit with the whole kind of argument about that he was selling out to beat music or, you know, those, those guys in It's No Direction Home, isn't it, when they're saying, we came to see a poet, not a pop group, not a pop group. You know, how many pop groups like that, one of them says, and you think, yeah. But I'm, I'm guessing that you just took it all on board, I, did you? I, I did. I was never a purist. I've never really been a purist about music because what was evident, and I think... It comes back to why did I get into Bob? Was it because of his tunes? Was it was because of his his melodies? Was it because of his beautiful singing voice? No, it was the lyrics, and the lyrics never went off the boil when he went electric. If anything, they became more poetic, <laughs> less prosaic, less protesty, and more in that world that I was interested in. And and references as well. I'm sure this is true for many people, especially of my age. The first time I'd ever heard of T.S. Eliot or Ezra Pound was Desolation Row. <laughs> Einstein disguised as Robin Hood, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Mm. You listen to that one song and you think, oh, God, that's another 30 people I've got to check on mm. and see who they are yeah. uh, and, and what their relevance is. And, you know, sometimes, of course, lyrically just chucks things in either because it rhymes or, you know, because it will make people go, oh, what's that all about? You know, he's quite quixotic in that way, but his references are pretty damn sound throughout mm. the course of, you know, whether it's Blind Willie McTell or whether it's Mega Evers or whether it's uh, uh, Reuben Hurricane Carter mm -hmm. or Joey, mm. you know, it's like... <laughs> There's always a story, isn't there, with those people that he's referencing? It's not just a chuck away. No, you, you, keep, you keep on learning. I mean, I was actually listening to uh, Murder Most Foul today, mm. and that particular Bud Powell song, I don't know. And it was, I just made myself uh, another note. You know, it's, what, what, do you remember which? It's something by Bud Powell. And so I've got to, to check that. Richard just spilled water all over I'm the I'm sorry about that. That's okay. We'll keep that in. It shows that we're it's in a better studio. Than, better to have water on the table than blood on the tracks. Love Me or Leave Me by the great Bud Powell. That's right. And that, I'm not uh, looking well it up, done. listeners. Honestly, well it just done. came to yeah. me. Well, Play Love Me or Leave Me but, by you know, the great Bud Powell. I mean, you could learn everything about life just by listening to mm. the canon of Bob Dylan. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, uh, funny enough, I, I was doing my own radio show, <coughs> Dark Times Radio, episode 65 yesterday, and I always play a Bob track, at least a Bob track, and usually two or three somehow insinuate their way in. And um, uh, I played Paul Boy yesterday mm -hmm. uh, from Love and Theft. Love and Theft, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which I was introduced to by a mate of mine, Chris Bond, who uh, runs The Wire magazine. And I've known Chris for ever since he was at Polydor Records when I was there, but and we'd always been uh, buddies in Bob. And um, he introduced me to that long after it had come out. I'd never really given it the time of day, and I really enjoyed it. But someone, I think uh, a critic called Michael Atwood, said that song is the complete overview of American culture. Because it references jazz and vaudeville and, and Huck Finn and knock knock who's there jokes and mm -hmm. you know the whole lot of uh, American popular culture is sort of in that song and 
he does that over and over again, doesn't he? Repeatedly, he manages to, with one line, bring in a whole swathe of American cultural history, mm. just in passing, just a reference, you know, knock mm. that one off. And... So did you fall off, uh, or rather get off the Bob train at some point because you said you yeah. weren't aware of... The... Yeah, I yeah. did. I think, I suppose it was around the time of the accident... I was so into those albums, Bringing It All Back Home, Highway 61, Blonde on Blonde. What do you mean it's a double album? Oh, it's got two records. Well, <laughs> uh, this idea that a pop song, although, of course, we frowned on anyone calling it pop, it's not pop. It's, you know, By then, it was just about rock, I think. It came along at the same time as drugs, of course. Yeah. And the enjoyment of taking drugs and listening to wonderful lyrics ideally with headphones, surrounded by friends in a similar state, all saying, oh, wow, and looking at the, the lyrics on, on a cover or something, was all part of that huge communal sense of belonging. And there was something about what Bourdieu calls cultural capital. If you were seen carrying a Bob Dylan record, you were very different from someone seen carrying a Dave D. Dozy Beaky Mick and Titch record. That record mm. spoke volumes about not just your musical taste, mm. about your politics, about mm. uh, your understanding of the world. Mm. And, of course, it's difficult to do that now with downloads or streaming. Mm. You know, It's very hard to, to leave a download or a stream lying around on the bedroom table to impress the girls. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to mention briefly, this is when I discovered you were a kindred spirit. We worked together back in 1995 on a play. It was my first play, actually, Leaving Drama School. And we were working in Newbury in Berkshire and every night, you know, you'd be driving back to London. You'd say, anyone else want to come? You know, yeah. I'll be at Chiswick Roundabout in 35 minutes. You know, <laughs> we're going to pedal to the metal. I said, yeah, Richard, I'll, I'll come. I'm going to head back to London tonight. And you said, and we got talking about Bob Dylan and you said, oh, I bet you haven't heard this. And you put on a tape that had what I now know to be take 14 of Visions of Johanna, okay. which I'd never heard before because this was the the tape sharing days and the sort of, yeah. kind of, you know, borrow this, copy it, get it back to me kind of thing. So yeah. this was the cassette days. This cassette was the cassette days. days. Yeah. And, God, it blew my mind. And every time I listen to it now, I'm transported back to that day. But it was it was like, it was that wonderful thing where you just recognise this kindred spirit. You peeked the the edge of a world, you know, yeah. Yeah. into into this this other universe. And it was Visions of Johanna, but it was different. It was upbeat. It was with the Hawks, the band, yeah, you know. That's right, yeah. And, God, it was exciting. Uh, very exciting. It's, it's funny because I, when I left school, I worked in record shops for quite a long while, and this is sort of 1968, 69, and it was the first uh, arrival in that world of the bootleg album. You know, the idea that something had been clandestinely recorded and not only recorded, but pressed onto vinyl put into it almost exclusively a white cover mm. with a, a rubber stamp on it that said Great White Wonder. And I was working down at Cheapo, just around the corner here, down in the basement, and these dodgy characters would just arrive, you know, with a box of 25, and they were ludicrously expensive, you know, and unlistenably poor quality. The first one being the basement tapes, I think, was the first one he ever heard. And you heard Bob saying, you clearly asking all good things. <laughs> you know, you just... <laughs> oh, it's brilliant, you know, yeah. because you'd heard that song by Manfred Mann or someone, and here was Bob singing, or Yay Heavy and a Bottle of Bread, all those mm. songs, you know. Please, Mrs Henry, Mrs yeah. Henry, please, you know, all those songs. And you just think, wow. 
there's all this material that has never been officially released. It's just escaped. This is the music, and it sounded like it. It was music being made on the hoof, you know, at Big Pink or wherever it mm -hmm. was. And it was unformulated, unpolished, no gloss to it at all. A lot of it was a bit hit and miss. Some of it was takes it just finished after two minutes or something. Mm -hmm. and, and But for me, the great joy of those records was when you heard a song that you knew, but you heard verses that you'd never heard before, yeah. or even a line. You know, it was like finding the, the Holy Grail somehow. Mm. You know, this is an alternate verse that he wrote but had never recorded before. Well, that version of Visions of Johanna is yeah. a classic example. Yeah. It's got the line, you know, he examines the Nightingale's code on it, hasn't it? And at the time it was like, what? Not heard that bit before. Rewind. rewind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> night, night and get cold? Nightingale's code? What, what was that? <laughs> uh, Dylan said to Robbie Robertson about that stuff, he said, we should destroy this. You know, this is this is not meant for public consumption. Yeah. We should we should get rid of these tapes. You know, because if you listen to Yeah Heavy and a Bottle of Bread, and you just heard Blonde on Blonde, yeah. you can't possibly conceive that these things were made a year apart. No, they're no. a lifetime no. apart. Well, that was the thing. I mean, in a rather roundabout way, when you said, "Where did I park my love for Dylan?" and, and I must say, I parked it temporarily, at least around that time. John Wesley Harding. <laughs> thought it was okay but it I thought it was okay because I really wanted it to be okay mm. you know after all that music that had just come out you'd had the Doors and Jefferson Airplane and Beatles and Stones doing stuff and Pink Floyd and everything was psychedelic you know and drug dripping and you get this John Wesley Harden which very enigmatic record you know it's back more or less to a, a ballad form you know the Frankie Lee and Judas Priest is mm -hmm. on there and Dear Landlord and those songs yep uh, and it's also quite well, very country at the end. Yeah, very quite country. country, just even approaching yeah, that because it was absolutely. And then I think they had New Morning, um, uh, Nashville Skyline, Nashville Skyline. <sighs> Take or leave Nashville Skyline. I mean, then by then it's getting very country, isn't yeah. it? New Morning, and then Self Portrait. By Self Portrait, I thought basta. You know, no, <laughs> you know, just. Too much, too self-indulgent, too little quality control, really, on the output, I felt, around that. Well, then, that was the ideal uh, outcome, that, because that's what Bob has gone on record as saying, OK, we don't believe everything Bob says. Yeah. But he did go on record as saying, you know, I just want to get people off my back. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So he got you off his, yeah. his back. Uh, yeah, uh, incredibly effective, that record. <laughs> Another double record, but this time it wasn't met with quite the same enthusiasm by by your guest. <laughs> and so how long did it take to get back on the Bob train? I think when those two great records came out, Desire and Blood on the Tracks, when they came out, he was so back on it, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. The songwriting, the uh, performance on, on the, you think, it Tangled Up in Blue or Idiot Wind, you know, to have written even one of those songs in your life. You know, let alone to have both those songs on one album, like album mm. number what, 15 or 18 or whatever it was. And to be back with that, and I still play them all the time. And the same with Desire, you know, with Hurricane and Joey and Sarah and Isis. So I see, yeah. Just uh, Romance in Durango, still one of my favourite songs ever, mm. you know. And it's very hard to really categorise that music, to put it into a genre, you know. No music is original anymore. You know, everything is hybrid. It's what you get when you bang two existing genres together. And sometimes you make an original spark, you know. Mm. 
or in the case of Oasis, you don't, you know. So, um, <laughs> what do you get if you bang the Sex Pistols and the Beatles together? Oh, you get Oasis. Oh, bad luck. <laughs> and sometimes you were thinking, I'm not sure about the violin, or I'm not sure about Scarlett Rivera, or I'm not sure about Emmylou Harris, and, you know, that real finger-in-your-ear sort of harmony singing. But the next time you hear it, you think... Damn, it is good. Mm. And, you know, lyrically, again, he's always bringing you back to fascinating things that you want to investigate in your spare time. Situations have ended, that might have been like Verlaine and Rambo. Mm -hmm. What's that all about? Yeah. Look it up. Oh, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, I must have seen him at Earl's Court. I remember queuing for hours and hours uh, to get tickets one weekend. So this is the first time you saw him, 78? Yeah, I think Must it was, been. yeah, yeah. And, it, I, yeah, it was Earl's Court, and he was doing a lot of those new songs, uh, and, you know, it was around that time that you realised that you were in a bit of a lottery whether you got good Bob or bad Bob yep. at a concert, mm. you know. I remember seeing him sometime much more recently, I think, at a festival down in Kent, it might, might have been the Hop Farm, where he, he sat at the organ for the entire duration of his performance, right? Uh, that's when you know you've got bad Bob. And, it, and, it, and, it, and it's only um, two and a half minutes in where you hear him go, how does it feel? You know, and you think, oh, my God, this thing is like a rolling stone. I didn't uh, that's, uh, but, you know, as a performer myself, you can sort of understand that cleft stick you're in between giving your audience what, they want, i.e. the album version of that song that they were teenagers listening to and, you know, had their first fumble with their girlfriend or something. And, of course, music is incredibly powerful and, and uh, the sensory impact of it lingers long after the sound is gone. Or, you know, whether you just think, I want to do that differently every mm. night, that song, you know, and... It's the devil's bargain, really. You, you know, you risk alienating your fans, but then you think, well, why should the fans tell an artist what they want? But, mm -hmm. you know, in commercial art, which is what popular music obviously is, there is a certain contract, I think, between mm -hmm. the audience and the performer. I imagine him saying to, like he speaks to that autograph hunter in 1966 in No Direction Home... Um, he says, if you needed my autograph, I'd give it to you. <laughs> and I like to think he probably says that about his, his songs. You know, if you needed them done the way you hear them on the record, I'd do that. But, yeah. you know, I've judged you know, and you that's imagine, not you, you imagine if you went to see Hamlet when Shakespeare was still alive and you, you, you say, oh, you're going to love this where he says to be or not to be, you know, and he comes mm. on, you know. And he just wasn't feeling it or not day. being, yeah. you know. That's what's getting me. <laughs> and you're thinking... Yeah, um, and that's sort of what he does, isn't it? You know, mm -hmm. he takes his Hamlets and he deconstructs them, uh, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. There's some great stuff in um, the Scorsese film of the Rolling Thunder yeah. tour where he does songs in the most unexpected way and they are brilliant. Mm. Is it Harry Carroll he does? Yeah, with, he does. With Mick Ronson playing guitar. Yep. Yeah, he hard rocks it, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and Hard Rain's yeah. going to fall. And... Hard Rain, yeah. yeah. 
And T-Bone Burnett's in there as well. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Just, it drives, doesn't it? Absolutely. There's just so many great songs, aren't there? You think of how many ways we've heard It's All Over Now, Baby Blue done. And it's heartbreaking, whichever way you hear it. It's almost a bulletproof song, you know, whoever sings it is all... The first time I ever heard Love Minus Zero No Limit was mm. when the Walker Brothers covered it on, oh, wow. a, on the first mm. Walker Brothers album. Mm. And you can imagine Scott Walker's voice crooning that, mm. my love, she speaks, you know, mm. it's beautiful. But then to hear Bob doing it with all that edge and that lyric, you know, a fabulous uh, romantic lyric. Have you heard Marianne Faithful? She's done two versions of it, the more recent version of It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. Yeah, yeah. God, it sounds like the end of the world. It's fantastic. Yeah. I think well, the, the I, had, I had the great pleasure of touring the world with Marianne for two and a half, three years, doing uh, Tom Waits' uh, The Black Rider, stage played by William Burroughs and directed by Robert Wilson, wow. Bob Wilson. So, I mean, fantastic. And Marianne, I don't know if you know Tom Waits. Is, uh, Actually, I, I saw it at the barbecue. Oh, yes, so I, I guess was, I saw I you. was the guy in the frame, yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for, for three years, yeah. But it's a, a Faustian story, loosely, and Marianne plays the devil, so, you know, clearly no acting required at all. <laughs> but um, but spending time on the road with her yeah. was fantastic because she'd just been there, you know, and, you know, she was the 1960s rock female icon, if mm. there was one. She had that amazing voice, but also she had these amazing contacts and an, an incredible iconography or mythology about mm. her. And I stopped doing that job. I came back from Los Angeles in 2006 or something. The first job I got, I was working with Anita Pallenberg. Oh, wow. I know. So I collect the set. <laughs> <laughs> collect the set, please. Um, Fabulous. Did, did you ever discuss, do you have any remembrance of discussing Bob with either of them? Uh, with, with Marianne, yeah, because um, Marianne was very much in that 60s thing, whereas uh, Anita wasn't so much, I don't think, not in the, the London thing at, mm. the, at that mm. point. I think she joined it a little bit later, you know, when the Stones are absolutely in their pomp and that dandyism of Jagger and Brian Jones and Keith Richards mm. around 65, 66, you know, when, you know, flounces and velvet and just looking outrageous and the hair's coming down to here, you know, and, of course, drugs have come in and... Marianne is this incredibly exotic but somehow doomed convent girl who's taken up with a bad boy and mm. loving it, you know. Mm. <laughs> and the other one, of course, who, who was... Uh, I, I mentioned I was uh, besotted with the French thing was Françoise Hardy. Mm. And Françoise Hardy was uh, a great object of affection for Barb. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's on the back of my... Fave album, uh, another side of where, where there's a poem that is called Fourth Quantasadi, mm. you know, the, the Saint's Edge, blah 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 blah. blah. Mm -hmm. But apparently they couldn't speak to each other; they just didn't <laughs> understand what the other was saying. It was something so elemental and so based on the French that he comes out with in that Paris gig on the '66 tour when he on his 25th birthday he plays Paris on his 25th birthday, and he's borrowed a guitar. And so the acoustic set is just all over the fucking right. shop because it's it's out of tune, and people, some people are saying, "Bob, bon uh, anniversaire!" And he's going, oh, "Thank you." And, and then you know, and then but no, he, he he says he attempts some very odd French at one point. He says to someone, he says, uh, "Avez-vous un bœuf?" 
which I think is literally, you know, do you have a beef? Do you have a problem with me? <laughs> so that's actually it's quite good bad. French. That's pretty good. <laughs> but I think he hung out with Françoise Hardy that, that night as well. I think there are pictures of them together. Yeah. Did he ever meet Brigitte Bardot? Because I know at one point in an interview he said he was obsessed with Brigitte Bardot. I'm not sure if he does. Or I think he said he wrote his first song for Brigitte Bardot or something, or to try to There's certainly get together uh, where he's talking to... President Kennedy's calling me up. He says, my friend Bob, what do we need to make the yes, country grow? I said, my friend John, Bridgie Bardo, Anita right. Edberg, Sophia Loren, country all grow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, your group, Doctors of Madness, yeah. did they have any connection with Dylan at all? Did you tr- ever... Dylan was my... When I got into music, again, like uh, I mentioned my enjoyment and appreciation of Bob, it was through the lyric and the attitude. And my attitude was formed by the snottiest of people, really. It was Lennon, it was Dylan, it was Andy Warhol, and it was Lou Reed. You know, they were the people who sort of made me want to be that rather snotty, uh, recalcitrant, unhelpful. I, uh, my, my heart was never really in it, though. I was always too nice. <laughs> you know, but I like the idea of being that difficult interviewee, you know, but as soon as someone was nice to me, I just, oh, yeah. what do you want to know? I said, everything, <laughs> isn't it? Um, it was those three especially, Dylan, Lou Reed and, and Lennon, who were my heroes, I guess. And then, I suppose, uh, Bowie as well. And now Bowie obviously had been... Um, enamoured of Bob, as we know from uh, his song to Robert Zimmerman, but also just his uh, general. Everyone in white Anglo-American pop music or rock music around that time was at least aware of Bob Dylan, and as likely as not, your lyrics, whether you could trace it back or not, were influenced by the fact that Dylan was the first fully literate lyricist of our generation. Mm. You know, he was Jacques Brel, but, oh, he was... I don't know the sh- the um, uh, the political singers of the Berlin Cabaret or or, mm. or whatever Carl Valentin or uh, you know the Dadaists or, or or whatever. There was something about him that was just so powerful and so irresistible as a force that if you didn't want to be Bob Dylan, you shouldn't be writing songs. That's what I felt back mm. then. You know, I th- I thought. Why would I want to write anything that was not as good as that? And of course, it haunts you. You 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 think that forever, you know. You, because not only was Dylan so prolific, but his strike rate at certain periods was so extraordinarily high. You know, to make so many great songs in such a short period of time. I started off my show this week with uh, "Stuck Inside a Mobile." Mm. You just think. It's just brilliant. It's just brilliant. I know. I, I often feel sorry for people who, artists who cover Bob Dylan songs on their album, yeah. because I think, well, now you got to follow it up with one of your own songs, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it almost certainly won't be as good. You know, it's just a fact. There was a short period of time when Doctors of Madness would perform "Ballad of a Thin Man" live. Oh, really? Yeah, Interesting. yeah, uh, Mr. Jones. Yeah, and that had a certain enigmatic edginess to it which fitted in with what I wanted to do overall with that band it was it was placing it in a world I suppose placing it in a context that was just out of reach somehow Mm. 
So with a song like Ballad of a Thin Man, you understand every single word, but you you think, I've never been in that situation that Mm -hmm. he's singing about there. You know, you walk in the room, you know, with a pencil in your hand, you see someone naked, you say, who's that man? You just think... It's never happened to <laughs> But he's just told me, I walk into him, it's not like, I mean, there's something about that lyric, isn't it? It's all second person. Mm. You walk in the room, you see someone naked, you say, who's that man, you mm. know? You know, that's, the whole of that lyric of that song is telling you, the listener, what you do. It's mm. weird, isn't it? Mm. Because uh, songs don't do that. They're either first or third person. They're never second person. And I love how it becomes, and here I am talking about the, 1966 tour again, but I love how by the end of May 66, he's in Kensington, you know, the the most fashionable place in the universe, <laughs> and telling a bunch of music fans, you know, something is happening but you don't, don't know, know what it is. is. No. You know, fuck you. You yeah. think you're all clever walking up and down yeah. Carnaby Street yeah, in, your, yeah, yeah. in your loud trousers yeah. and, you know, listening to, to reading Rambo and listening to Blonde on Blonde, yeah. you know nothing. Yeah. Yeah. But there's some really bad lines in that song that you wish you hadn't written. You say, what does this mean? He shouts back, you're a cow. Oh, Bob, you can do better than that. <laughs> you know, you really can do better than that, you know. That's like my eight-year-old grandson would say that, you know. Oh, genius, bravo. Do you hear what he said? He's a poet. Uh, but, you know... Anyone who can say, anyway, they already expect you to give a check to Tux Deductible Charity, organ, and it fits the line. I know. Oh, that is just breathtaking mm. and, and audacious, and 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 the cadence on his delivery on on that line, and you know, and it's a middle eight. It's, you know, you never hear it again. It's his first middle eight, I think, I, that, that, that he it? wrote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe well, so. Well, I'll be damned. Yeah. Yeah, I always Contacts used, and lumberjacks. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. I always used to look forward to getting to that part of the song, you know, almost at the, the expense of the verses that set it up, you know, because it would be, you have many contacts, you know. Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded in the Scarface Pacino Suite at Lip Sync Studios. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Robin Guise. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. I sing the songs of experience, like William Blake. I have no apologies to make. Everything's flowing all at the same time. I live on a boulevard of crime. I drive fast cars, and I eat fast foods. I contain multitudes. <laughs>